Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Thank you for joining me today. I have the book of Titus open, and in Titus chapter 1, it says, starting in verse 4, To Titus, my true son, in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. That's what I'm saying to you today. Grace and peace to you from me. We're going to have a really interesting conversation with Jeff Dodge. Uh, He uh, is teaching pastor at Veritas Church in Iowa City, Iowa, and he's got this powerful new Bible study called Titus, life-changing truth in a world of lies. The gospel truth is anything but static, and I think it's going to be a fascinating opportunity to learn more about Titus because I love that book. I'm pretty sure it's a a book of uh, a letter from one missionary to another, but there's so much to learn, and Jeff is going to be able to walk us through it. Uh, Jeff, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. Great to be with you. Yeah, so um, I want to just jump into this, Titus, right in the introduction, you say gospel truth isn't just about soul winning and church planting. Huh. I was scratching my head early on. <laughs> yeah. What are some other applications? Well, I, I think the, the beautiful example that we have uh, with the book of Titus, the letter that Paul wrote to Titus, is that, um, you know, doing missions certainly is just going out and proclaiming the gospel, and the Apostle Paul does that, you know, brilliantly. Um, But he also realized that what was going on is not just a a broad casting of of the gospel message out there and hoping for fruitfulness, but the establishment of local churches. And so as Paul would continue on, you know, making his circuit around from the next community to the next community— um, he was careful to make sure that each of those locales where the gospel really took anchor and took root um, had leaders there to to make sure that it was established and that it would be flourishing and that it would be a generation upon generation uh, work that was begun. So, you know, Tim, Timothy goes to Ephesus, Titus there in Crete, and, and so forth. So, um, yeah, I think it's a beautiful example of a more full-orbed, a view of what church planting and even first century all the way to today evangelism should look like. So, yeah, very instructive for us. Yeah, and there's some really great coaching in this letter, isn't there? Yeah, for sure, for sure. And when we are being instructed to do things like avoid foolish controversies and arguments right. and quarrels about the law, uh, boy, it makes you need to pay attention to that. Oh, man. And I feel like in so many ways, well, I mean, the whole Bible is timeless, right? It's living, it's active in 2020. Um, But certain books, it seems like, are especially pertinent to our day. And man, right now, I feel like, at least for us, I'm here in Iowa City, Iowa, uh, the book of Titus seems to be landing squarely in our time and space, in our city. And, uh, so grateful to see the the Bible just kind of kind of burst onto the scene, you know, in a in a really pronounced way. So for sure, yeah, Jeff, I got a whole bunch of Titus questions for you, but I'd love to have you weigh in on Titus two eleven. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. 
Really an amazing verse, and I don't think I've ever fully understood that well. As much as I've studied it, I've kind of gone back and forth. So I'd love to know more about that verse. Yeah, I do think that that Paul is writing there something similar to what uh, 1 John does, actually, the Apostle John, uh, deeper into our New Testament, where um, they're trying to make a very strong and bold statement just about the incarnation, that God has come to us, that you know, miraculous story that is so unique to the to the Christian faith, the Christian message, that God himself appeared, you know, the grace of God appeared to us. And we could, you know, in John's language, we could see him, we could hear him, we could mm-hmm. touch him, you know. Um, and so it, it was real. This is not myth. This is not lore. This, this is not an ideology, you know. Uh, this is not a worldview. This is a person. This is God-Man coming to us, and uh, and so then then you know Jesus comes and he leaves for us this truth, the the message that he brought of of the gospel, and uh, what what Paul is saying there is um, that's going to land in our hearts and souls and lives. It can't remain maybe in our in our head or in some kind of abstract faith. Um, it's going to instruct us. If we believe that Jesus Christ has come to bring salvation to us, then that message, that truth is going to instruct us on some things. There he mentions denying ungodliness, denying worldly lust, to live a different holy way. Um, and so you can't, in other words, you can't come face to face with the reality of the gospel and that Jesus Christ has come, that God-man has come to us in Jesus, and remain the same. It has to impact you and and radically change you, transform you, if you really believe that that's true. Mm -hmm. That's really, really good. So, Jeff, we know the Word of God is a sword. So Mm -hmm. how do we wrongly picture the sword? Mm, Right. I mean, often we think of the sword um, punitively, you know, and and it is often, right? It's there to cut down an enemy or, or to somehow mete out justice. But um, it, it also, you know, in the way that the, the scriptures talk about it, and by the way, the sword is used that way in the Bible, right? And it, even when Jesus comes back to bring out justice to the earth, you know, he has a sword in his mouth. You know? So, right. so we, we do see that imagery in the Bible. I, I don't deny that. But there's another level of imagery where it's also just precise and cutting, kind of lays us bare, but not in a harsh, uh, gory kind of way. It actually opens us up, right? So that it kind of reveals the inner self. It 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 uh, allows us to kind of be seen by God, and and that's that's the beautiful way that the Bible works. Is you know we come, we open this book with some preconceived ideas about who we are, that we're right about this and wrong about that. Um, and then the Bible kind of lays us bare and allows us to see what's actually really true. And we understand that, oh, we're not actually accountable to ourselves. We're, we're not the judge and jury to ourselves. Oh, there's a God that created us that actually is the final judge of what we believe and, and what we hold to be true and how we live. And the, and the Bible kind of does that work for us, lays us open so that we can see what, what really are the thoughts and intentions of the heart, right? Hebrews 4, uh, 12 and 13. Mm-hmm. We're, we're not hidden from him anymore. The The word of God has kind of opened us up and exposed us to the eyes of him to whom we must ultimately give an account. Um, so I hope that's what Titus does for us. I hope it it reveals stuff to us that 
you know, maybe we hadn't seen or we'd been refusing to see or something yeah, along the way. Great point. Uh, Jeff, why was Titus so determined to uh, establish leaders for the church in Crete? Yeah. Um, I think the biggest thing is that Jesus taught us in the incarnation that the that the way to to the Jesus path, the, the, the Jesus way, um, was going to be by following him, right? Be a follower of Jesus, a Christ follower. Um, in other words, we were to hear the way he talked, watch the, the places that he would walk to, see his interactions with people, and that would be instructive and informative. We don't just, we're not just handed a book, we're following a person. And so in many ways, the leaders of God's church um, in a, a lower eye incarnate, <laughs> we're, not, we're, not, we're not incarnate the way that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God, but we incarnate, we bring to flesh the truths of the gospel so that people can see them and hear them. And so these leaders, the number one job actually that, that the leaders have is to be examples. I think one of the greatest um, spots in the New Testament for that um, is in 1 Peter 5. Um, I love how Peter here, so I, I, I'm just saying like all, there seems to be a collaboration of New Testament voices saying this, the same thing Jesus taught his disciples well. Because Peter says, hey, shepherd God's flock uh, among you, not overseeing, you're not out of compulsion, uh, not lording it over people, but he says, being examples to the flock. Mm. Um, And so the number one, yeah, thing that leaders are to do isn't just to make decisions, though they are to make decisions um, on different things. They guard sound doctrine. They have other jobs. But really, just central to their role in the church is to be an example of the gospel, uh, show people what it looks like. And especially when you think of pre-printing press church, you know, which would have been like 1,500 years of church, um, there was very precious uh, little actual, like, Bible for people to sit and read, and many of them were illiterate, even if had been available. But what they could do is hear the Word of God and then see it lived out among their leaders, and that was that was the number one way that disciples were formed and, and made. So, so Paul, I'm just saying, Paul was was really um, very determined that the Christ followers in Crete would have uh, you know a whole community of of leaders to, for, for them to give examples of how to live the Christian life and, and let the church flourish by following them. Yeah, Jeff, you can't argue a life well-lived, can you? Right. Exactly so. Yeah. Exactly so. All right, let me take a little break. I am talking to uh, Dr. Jeff Dodge, but he said, just call me Jeff. Doesn't that make you like him even more right now? <laughs> We're talking about his book, Titus, Life-Changing Truth in a World of Lies. After a short break, we'll be right back with lots more with Jeff. Jeff Dodge today, teaching pastor at Veritas Church in Iowa City. He's also author of Gospel 101, 
Learning, Living, and Sharing the Gospel. But today we're chatting about his new Bible study, Titus, Life-Changing Truth in a World of Lies. We're talking about elders and qualifications the elders needed to meet, and maybe there were some expectations that were put upon them. It's important to just live a life and model a well-lived life, isn't it, Jeff? Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Not, so, that comes through in the very first chapter. <laughs> right. But what what was going on in Crete during the first century? What, why the why the need for what was it like our culture today? Right. Well, actually, quite a bit like it. I, I think at least the culture that I live in, um, it it was you know an island state, and so there were a lot of harbors, many many harbors and ports. It it allowed for that, just the contour of the of the land and so forth, and so it became a, a pretty important kind of trade route on the open sea there. And so uh, because of that, um, there, there certainly were Cretans that lived there and, and found their, their home there for generation after generation. But you had these transients, these sailors and merchants and different ones that would come through. And like a lot of uh, port cities around the world, um, that can bring people of disrepute <laughs> into the neighborhood because you know, oh, if I'm away from my family and I'm this traveler, I'm this merchant, I'm this sailor, whatever, maybe I can get away with some things while I'm, I'm traveling that I wouldn't be able to do under the watchful eye of, of my spouse or my, my neighbors or whatever. And so a lot of pretty shady things would go on in a lot of these port cities all around Crete. And then the Cretans who lived there began to take advantage of, of a lot of these, um, you know, passers-by. And so they became pretty deceptive and um, – you know, pretty good at getting what they wanted out of these people who were just uh, transitory through through their island. And so, yeah, it was it was a pretty rough, <laughs> pretty rough place to plant a church. Um, I love it in chapter one, verse twelve. It says one of their very own prophets said, "Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons." Right. So. No, um, they kind of wore that, I guess, as a as a badge of honor <laughs> about themselves that. They're lying, evil beasts, and, and lazy gluttons. So, yeah, not exactly, I guess, where you'd hope to always plant a church in, in an island that boasts about those kind of anti-virtues, I guess. But that was that was the island of Crete. Also reminds me of that little saying that the out-of-town you is the real you. Oh, man. Oh, that's solid. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. what are— Adding to the gospel, never a good idea. It's always going to result yeah. in false teaching. What are some of the, the traps that, um, that that's going to result in? Yeah, well, and, and one of the things that Titus, uh, Paul's letter to Titus, is really careful on is that even though he gives them a lot of, um, you know, moral help, like do this, don't do that kind of thing, he's always careful to bring it back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, this was not a teaching that said, if you clean up your life and if you start acting like a Christian, then you will get to go to heaven. Mm-hmm. No, it was, it was always coming back to, you know, the grace of God has appeared, bringing that salvation for all people. Even that verse that, that you referenced a little bit ago, that there was a, a constant pull back to Jesus Christ and uh, the washing of regeneration that we have in Christ by the Holy Spirit. And so I think one of the major, um, you know, false teachings that, that this letter corrects is, is that moralism, that somehow I just have to clean my life up and that I'm in good graces with God. Instead, this is be transformed by the, the gospel of Jesus Christ and then live that out, have, have 
a new identity in Christ that then brings out a whole new way of living. And whereas before I, I lost all kinds of control and would give in to all sorts of things, now I'm marked by things like self-control, right? Now all of a sudden I, I find that the Holy Spirit is allowing me to rein in some of those passions that had been uh, just, you know, unbridled pre-Christ. So I think that's one of the biggest things is, is uh, going against the gospel of moralism mm-hmm. in this book. Yeah. Jeff, I know Titus goes into the subject of submission. I know that's kind of a, a misunderstood mm-hmm. subject. What, what, what does biblical submission look like? I love the way that Paul even introduces himself in the front of the book. That sets the pace for what you're saying in the submission thing, because he calls himself Paul, a servant of God. So right away, his posture is that of a submissive servant before God, right? And um, that is following the long line of great heroic figures like Moses, servant of God, Joshua, servant of God, right? All All the way through. And clearly the finest example of submissive servanthood is Jesus Christ himself, right? That that laid his life down for others. He got down on his hands and knees to wash the feet of his disciples. He was always putting himself in a posture of servanthood, not just to his father, but to, but to those that would surround him. And so that idea of submission um, comes through loud and clear for how we're to posture ourselves, uh, whether in the workplace, um, he talks to wives being in submission to their husbands, Young men are to be in submission to elders, you know, uh, the servants are to be submissive to their masters and that kind of thing. So there's this posture of, of servant submission that is really a beautiful Jesus-like quality that we're supposed to um, have really as a result of the gospel invading our hearts and souls. Mm-hmm. Jeff, I know Titus uh, addresses the issue when people start to argue and that's always a problem. Yeah. Uh, so we can we can understand that almost on a daily basis. So I, right. I bet Paul has got some wisdom that's that he's going to offer Titus that you might be able to oh, share man. with how we can apply that to life today. Yeah, and and I'm telling you, this is where you know, like I said before, this this text is just landing in our contemporary culture and our contemporary cities because um, you know. First of all, asking us to submit to rulers and authorities um, that we're supposed to obey them. But then in chapter three, he goes further and says, hey, slander no one. Avoid fighting. Be kind. Always show gentleness to all people. I like this. Be kind. Be nice. You know, <laughs> and I, I feel like, man, in our day, there are a lot of evangelical Christians that are feeling a freedom to be very hostile in word. Um to to kind of unleash unkindness toward people that disagree with them, even within the body of Christ. And um, this book really just just goes right to the heart of things. That if we're truly transformed by the gospel, we're we have, we're to have nothing to do with slander, fighting. We're to, we're to be known by kindness and gentleness, right? And so, yeah, we man, we need a healthy dose of that right now in the church. I believe. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about humility, and that's another issue I think that's related to people arguing. There's such a lack of humility. We don't listen to each other. Uh, Um, And and how does that relate to to just truth? Right, right. And that's, you know, I love the way especially that he addresses um, younger men because, um, you know, young men are to be 
maybe the strong, even kind of wink at their abrasiveness at times because, man, be strong and lead and charge and all that. Uh, actually, Paul tells Titus, no, don't don't let young men in Christ get away with that. No, they should also be humble. They're to be marked by self-control. Like if there's anything that, again, we feel like culturally in the West, we can let young men, you know, kind of sow their wild oats, you know, get out there. No, no. Christian, young men, you be self-controlled in everything, he says, and make yourself an example of good works. So, yeah, there there is to be a posture of humility, even from those that we would maybe wink at or, or give a pass on that to, you know, maybe maybe older guys to be humble, you know, and they grow into it. No, also, you tell that even those young dudes that they are to be self-controlled and humble in the way they posture themselves toward others. Jeff, I'm always grateful when... Bible teachers like you put together little studies like this because they're, they're so accessible and they're so rich. And so this Titus study is, it's actually part of the uh, gospel-centered life in the Bible series. Right. So are there, um, how, do I, how do I get a hold of that? And are there other studies yeah. available in this same series? Yeah, there are some really rich ones. And they're just just now starting to, to come out uh, even more. But yeah, I... I for sure would recommend the entire series. Just go to New Growth Press and uh, and see the ones that are available. But uh, man, I'm telling you, I, I love the fact. Well, right now, just as as Titus is coming out, Ephesians and Revelation are also coming out, and they're tremendous uh, studies as well. I, I like what they're doing. What New Growth is doing is an entire series of these from specific books of the Bible. So you're not just studying the Bible, which is always a good thing, but with a, a very intentional purpose of finding the gospel richness in every passage, in, in every uh, lesson, every session of the studies all the way through. So, yeah, it was a blast to, to work with New Growth and creating this one, and uh, there's a whole lot more of them coming out. Yeah. Well, Titus is a great book. It's got tons of really practical wisdom, and when it comes to uh, being a follower of Jesus, this is a book that you should absolutely be studying. Um, in the culture that we're living in today. And your yeah, book, so. Titus, Life-Changing Truth in a World of Lies, is uh, available. And um, uh, Jeff Dodge has been my guest. Jeff, you, you're a delight. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the show and doing this. Really nice to meet you. It's great to meet you as well. I've had a blast. Thanks for having me. Cool. Well, let's do it again because uh, I've really enjoyed this, and I know my listeners did too. So thank you, and have a great rest of the day. All right. God bless. You bet. Uh, Jeff Dodge has been my guest again the book is, uh, it's a Bible study. It's called Titus, Life-Changing Truth in a World of Lies. All right, after a short break, we'll be right back with plenty more. Faith Radio.
to the show. Always glad when I get a chance to talk to my friend, Dr. Greg Heddington. He is a, a lover of God's Word and a fantastic teacher. And uh, he's got a message today for us called Ransom, Redeemed, Restored. I can hardly wait. Greg, welcome. Hi, Bill. Uh, I don't want to take up a lot of my own talking time. I want to get into this lesson, so let's, uh, let's, let's get to it. Okay, today I'd like to focus on one central idea, but we can get there by looking at another topic that's lately raised the interest of some people, and that subject is the end times. There's been a lot of programs on television recently regarding various ways that the Earth might end, whether it's volcanoes or extreme weather or pandemics, and this topic has been unsettling for a lot of people, especially those who have not put their faith in the Lord. So what does Scripture say about things like when will the world end? How is the end connected with the second coming of Jesus? Who will go to heaven, and how are we to live with Christ until then? Now, apart from the end times, my central focus today is on the fact that every follower of Jesus has been ransomed, redeemed, and restored by the Lord in spite of the end times and everything else that we that may distract us. So those three words are also related, but Well, for instance, for the word ransom, I I am stating that Jesus has made the payment to release his people from the prison of sin through his death. For the word redeem, I'm describing how Christ has substituted himself for the punishment we deserve because of our sin. And for the word restore, I'm using it to mean how, through the death of our Lord, God has brought us into the relationship with him that he's always intended from the very beginning. So it's ransomed, redeemed, restored. And those are the central ideas for this lesson to keep in mind as we look at a few other subjects, including the end times. So, if you happen to be a note-taker, Roman numeral one, when will Jesus return? Well, let's, let's all agree right up front, no one knows the answer to that question. We put our faith in Scripture, and Jesus tells us in Matthew twenty-four thirty-six that no one knows the exact date except the Father. That's as clear as mud, and yet it has not discouraged certain people throughout history for predicting an exact date for the end. Or in the lingo of Wall Street, that might be referred to as an attempt to get spiritual insider trading information. (laughs) Now, there's many examples of such attempts to acquire this insider information over the centuries, but let me just mention one of the more recent efforts. In 1988, a man named Edgar Weishman told his followers, quote, Mark your calendars because the rapture, meaning the end of the world, will occur between September 11 and September 13, 1988. (laughs) You have to notice that he allows a three-day margin of error in that uh, predicting, just in case. So after selling over 2 million copies of his little book entitled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Occur in 1988, well, there's not much more to say except that here we are today. By the way, I do not know if anyone asked for a refund on their book. Whoever is tempted to set an exact exact day for the return of Christ should remember again the Lord's words we just quoted in Matthew 24, 36, that no one knows except the Father in heaven. However, God has given us some clues, we call them signs, in Scripture regarding the general time of Christ's return. Now, we could look at Revelation, but for this, let's turn to the prophet Zechariah, who was a priest in the 6th century B.C., who had returned from the 70-year exile of the Jews in Babylon to the devastated city of Jerusalem about 520 B.C. In chapters 12 to 14 of Zechariah, we find at least two prophecies. 
First, Israel will be reestablished in her land when Christ returns. Now, as we know, Israel was established May 1948 as a nation, so it will be reestablished at the second coming, according to Zechariah. Second, Zechariah says Christ will return at a time of world conflict in which Israel will be the focus of an attack. Now, of course, world conflict seems to happen every day, so that's not very specific. But regardless of the exact day, the fact that Christ will return in the last days to receive those who believe in him, whether Jew or Gentile, and when we read the last three chapters of the book of Zechariah, and I suggest maybe you do that later, we discover three things. Number one, Israel will at least intellectually recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Number two, not only will Israel intellectually recognize Jesus as Messiah, but there will also be many who repent. In other words, they will not just receive information about Messiah, but transformation of their hearts so they will worship Jesus as Lord. And the Lord will forgive them who had been unrepentant before for rejecting Messiah the first time around, 20 centuries before. Number three, it states that it's up to each individual everywhere as to whether they believe that is to trust. Well, in fact, the Greek word for believe, I, I learned this years ago, and it's really been helpful. It's the, the Greek word pisteu literally means to trust, to commit to, to put your weight down on Jesus. I used to think it just meant agree, but it's more active than that, to trust, to commit, to put your faith down on Jesus. Now, there are two themes that are clear throughout Scripture. Number one, God is sovereign, which means his purposes will be accomplished. And number two, every person on earth has a choice to make as to whether or not they will follow Jesus. So here's a question. As we look at the world today and wonder how long things can continue to unravel, we wonder, has the world ever been any different in history, ever? Roman numeral two, if you're taking notes, St. Anthony and the way of the world. Now, uh, Anthony, whose first name was not Saint, but he would later receive an honorific title by the church of saints. So let's just call him Anthony. Anthony is considered the father of monks and the first of the desert fathers. Anthony lived in Egypt in the third century A.D. and began a new movement of sincere Christ followers who moved to the desert to live lives of solitude, silence, and prayer. They were called the Desert Fathers, and in fact, you can read books about them called The Wisdom of the Desert and Sayings of the Desert Fathers. But Anthony began by living in poverty in a hut on the edge of his village in Egypt and occupied himself with manual work and labor. But soon he realized that in order to be fully transformed into a new creature in Christ, he had to die to his former self. So Anthony withdrew into complete solitude and silence of the Egyptian desert. Now, his experience in the desert was excruciatingly painful, but exquisite. And when he finally emerged from 20 years of isolation, he was blessed with a rich and diverse ministry. People from all walks of life came to him for advice, and the advice he gave was simple and direct. Now, I will not go into the details about that, but here's the main point for us today. One day... As a small group of people gathered around Anthony, hoping to hear advice from him, Anthony, looking into the future, said these words, words which have an eerie timeless. 
He said, Time is coming when men will go mad, and when they see someone who is not mad, they will attack him, saying, You are mad. You are not like us. Well, those words have been true throughout history, and as the years go by, I believe we will see more false prophets, more examples of extremism, both politically and spiritually, and more bias against minority and groups, including those who are true Christ followers. So here's a question. Is this the way God intended our world to be? Absolutely not. The problem is that sin permeates the human heart and has blinded much of the world. Followers of the Lord are sometimes thought to be mad and out of their minds and out of reality. But happily, Zechariah assures God's people that a new world awaits something that's coming from behind the veil which is the end of times, the day of the Lord, in which Jesus the Christ will rule the world justly, lovingly, as he ushers in a new era, described in Scripture as a virtual return to the Garden of Eden, in which there's peace with nature, absence of malice, prosperity, security, and fellowship with God. And that is the way things ought to be, and the Lord will determine that it happens. And believers will be transformed, excuse me, ransomed, redeemed, and restored. Now, we may be absolutely committed to the truth personally, but no matter how sincerely we attempt to convince another person of the scriptural truth through logical discussion that Jesus is the truth, it will never be received into someone's heart and transform them into becoming a new creature in Christ without what? the supernatural witness of the Holy Spirit. As Jesus says in John 6, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, him or her, as the case may be. So there is no greater miracle, I think we know this, than a heart transformed into being a Christ follower as one experiences being ransomed, redeemed, and restored. So, Bill, those are my first two points. Wow, Greg, I am, uh, I'm riveted, to be honest. I've been uh, not only taking notes, but I've been uh, captivated by this. So thank you so much mm. for uh, getting us started on this discussion. This is fascinating. Dr. Greg Heddington is my guest. We're talking uh, about uh, ransomed, redeemed, and restored, and I'm loving it. Let me take a little break. We'll be back in 90 seconds with lots more. So glad to have my friend, Dr. Gray Heddington, as my guest. We're uh, getting some wonderful biblical teaching. We're learning about uh, being ransomed, redeemed, and restored. Three words I love. And Greg, let's, uh, if you're ready, let's uh, let's get back to this. Sure thing. Well, Bill, once again, if anybody's taking notes, Roman numeral three, how are we to live now, believing and living this transformed life in Christ? Well, I'm going to give a few thoughts for the coming days. As this pandemic continues, people are experiencing fear, anxiety, confusion, and despair throughout the world. The future is unclear, and people are looking for some kind of permanent peace of mind. 
believers, at least academically, might pass the written test and give the correct spiritual answers regarding how Jesus has promised to meet our needs, even though they may not really believe. And again, that Greek word, the real word for Greek belief is to trust, to commit to, to put your weight down on. Because we've suffered, and we've gone through pain and tragedy, and after all, come on, aren't we believers supposed to get a pass on some of these bad things that happen to us? Well, the answer to this could be an entire lesson, but let me briefly say this. Living a faithful, righteous life for Jesus does not mean we will be spared from suffering and tragedy. In fact, believers may suffer even more pain and tragedy than non-believers. In fact, Jesus guaranteed that we would suffer in this life. But in John 16:33, Jesus says, Do not be discouraged because I have overcome death. So if we're believers, we're in Christ, and because he overcame death, so will we one day. I do not mean to sound blasé about this. Yes, there is suffering in life, and the Lord is right there with us. And be assured that nothing will happen to us that has not already been cleared by our loving Lord for our ultimate good. After all, God is large and in charge. Amen. So the apostles are filled with fear, anxiety, and confusion in John fourteen twenty seven because Jesus just told them he's going away from them. And sometimes we have fear because we sense the Lord is not with us. And we desperately want to know peace. We want a permanent peace, a peace that will not leave us. And Jesus says in John fourteen twenty seven to his apostles, peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Now, those are crucial words because many of us live with guilt, anxiety, fear, and regret for mistakes we've made in the past, as well as things that have been done to us. Furthermore, we often have fear of the future. So when we live with guilt and regret about our past and we have fear of the future, it's difficult to be present in the now. And that guilt over our past mistakes can be debilitating. For example, I know of a woman right now that I talk with who's clinically depressed and in a treatment facility because she cannot forgive herself for past mistakes. And I know she is not the only one out there. One weapon the enemy uses against us is when we are so distracted by previous failures that we do not acknowledge deep in our heart that God has forgiven us and he wants us to live an abundant life of freedom now. Instead, some people keep hitting that repeat button that plays over and over and says something like, if I'd not done that thing, then I would not have to pay the consequences I'm paying right now. So is there any hope for me? Well, the answer is yes. The goodness of Jesus is that guilt, that pain, and that shame were paid for 2,000 years ago. Jesus purchased those sins. They were ransomed. Jesus substituted himself for the punishment we deserved. We were redeemed. And he brought us into the relationship with him he has always intended. We were restored, ransomed, redeemed, restored. Now, switching gears a little bit, here's a question. Who was the most evil person who ever lived? There's a, there's a lot of uh, competition for that title. And there's Stalin, Hitler, Idi Amin, Pol Pot, Mao Zedong. After all, each of those men killed millions. 
So who is the most evil? Who is the most evil person who ever lived? Well, the answer is clear. Jesus on the cross, the moment he took the sins of not only the killers I just mentioned, but the sins of everyone on earth, past, present, future. I mean, it's, it's unimaginable for the human mind to conceive of it, that Jesus paid for all those sins with his life as the perfect sacrifice. But we know from Scripture it's true. And when Jesus was about to die, he said, it is finished. What was finished? Well, the sins of the world for which we are guilty were once and for all paid for by Jesus on one Friday afternoon. Ransomed, redeemed, restored. And because of that, those of us who say yes to Jesus have also received the peace we've always been looking for, for which Jesus promised us back in that John fourteen twenty seven passage that we read earlier. Because of the cross, we're not just whistling in the dark, hoping that something good will happen. Why? Well, because something good has already happened to us, which we can never repay. What is it? Well, it's called grace. And we praise you, Lord, for your grace to us. Now, speaking of praise, how do we define praise? Well, there's a lot of different definitions, but I like to define praise as simply giving credit to whom credit is due. Mm -hmm. I like the way Augustine described it. Now, Augustine is not to be confused with Augustine grass, which we have a lot of here in the southern <laughs> states. Okay. Completely, well, at least it's a completely different way to pronounce it. Augustine was a 4th century scholar from North Africa who was so brilliant that it's like he dropped down from outer space. I mean, Martin Luther was heavily influenced by Augustine 11 centuries later. So Augustine described grace and the human condition like this, quote, all humanity is in a sinful state. We are sinking in quicksand, and the more we struggle, the further we sink. But we're thrown a rope, and we have a choice of taking the rope and being pulled to safety or not. We can take no credit for being rescued. How descriptive is that of our rescue? We can also think of grace like this. It's as if we've been given a check from the Lord to cover our sins. We have it in our pocket, but it will not do us any good there until what? Until we deposit it. Mm -hmm. Oh, you mean like deposit it somewhere down the street? No, we deposit it into God's bank. Well, what does that mean? It means that when we say yes to God and receive his forgiveness through the cross of Jesus, we then become free to live the abundant life he promised. Well, will we see problems? Oh, you bet. But the Holy Spirit is with us every moment of the day because we are ransomed, redeemed, restored. I have always appreciated the words of the serenity prayer, which has been used for years in 12-step meetings, which you probably know are based around scripture. Mm -hmm. It was written, in fact, by the brilliant theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, and I will not quote the entire prayer because it's the first part of the prayer I want to focus on. It begins like this. Many of you know this. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So here's a question. What things can we change? Well, it's not easy, but we can change our attitude and our behavior with the help of the Holy Spirit. We'll never do it perfectly, but God is not asking for perfection. In fact, here's a one-liner to remember. Jesus did not die to make bad people good or good people better. Jesus died to make dead people alive. Mm. 
so we do our best as a way of saying thank you to God for what he what we can never repay. As the 12 Steps program says, it's not about perfection, it's about progress. So with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can change our attitude and our behavior. Well, then what are the things we cannot change? Well, the answer may be tough for some to swallow, but the truth is we cannot change. Ready? We cannot change other people. Yeah, good point. It may take a few painful years to learn it like it did for me, but wisdom tells us that Try as we may, we cannot change others. Now, I love the title of that creative musical, which is called, I Love You, You're Perfect, Now Change. (laughs) And, of course, it's not going to happen. Now, what's another thing we cannot change? Well, we cannot change our past. We cannot change what we have done in the past or what was done to us in the past. But because the Lord has covered the past with the sacrifice of his blood, we can forgive our past sins and pain done to us. But it's not easy. I like what Anne Lamott, what she has to say about this. Quote, forgiveness is giving up all hope of having a better past. Wow. Now our past is over. The Lord's forgiveness is a done deal, and we can welcome it into our lives when we believe. And what's that word believe in in Greek? It's pisteu, to trust, to commit to, to put your weight down on Jesus, because he's the only one that can handle it. Now, check out what Jesus promises in Matthew 11, verse 29. He says he can handle our burden and give us rest. So our prayer is, Lord, give us the serenity to, to accept the things we cannot change, which is other people and our past, and the courage to change the things we can, like our attitude and our behavior, even though we'll never do it perfectly. But it's not about perfection. It's about progress. After all, we will never be good enough to deserve God's forgiveness, and we will never be bad enough to prevent it. Why? Because Jesus took care of it on the cross. It's a done deal. In conclusion, what must we know during this time of pandemic in order to have peace? Well, what must we know even if there is no pandemic in order to have peace? In other words, my final point, Roman numeral four, what is our only comfort in life and in death? In fact, it was a question that a number of theologians decided that the church must answer in the most succinct way possible. It was a church conference in Heidelberg, Germany in 1563, and they were careful to give answers from Scripture to 128 questions and principles for faith in a document known now as the Heidelberg Catechism. It's a long series of questions and answers, and we're just going to look at the first question, because it's a question all of us have asked throughout history. And here it is. Question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who at the cost of his own blood has fully paid for all my sins and has completely freed me from the dominion of the devil, that he protects me so well that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that everything must fit his purpose for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Amen. 
Oh, wow, Greg, that is fantastic. That is absolutely a brilliant uh, message, and I can't wait to listen to it again already. Okay, buddy. It is always a pleasure to be with you. Thanks so much. Yeah, no, it's great. And I know um, how much you uh, love to study and you love God's Word, and I just it comes pouring out of every pore in your body, which I love. Amen. Yeah. All right. Uh, thank you again. We'll look forward to our next chat. Dr. Greg Heddington has been my guest. That's all the show we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in, and thank you for being such uh, great supporters of Faith Radio. It means the world to me. I hope you have a wonderful night. Time to ring the bell. See you next week. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.